Hey everybody, welcome back to a new edition of the Piano Rhapsody Podcast, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the journey of an amateur piano player with the goal of playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day. Every week we take a look at one of the pieces I encounter along that road, exploring the history around the work as well as the music inside. The goal is that we all walk away appreciating music a little bit more and with a little more knowledge that we can use to work our way up to more complex pieces in the future. This is episode 6.3, the third episode in a series spotlighting the classical period and one of its biggest contributors, Ludwig van Beethoven and his Opus 49. Opus 49 is a work containing two of Beethoven's easiest and shortest piano sonatas, number 19 and number 20. We discussed Sonata Number 20 at length in the previous two episodes, so today we're going to shift our focus to Number 19. But before we jump into the music, I wanted to dedicate some time to talking about why Beethoven is so renowned for bringing piano solo performance to the limelight, and what he did to revolutionize the instrument aside from his compositional output, which in itself is legendary. First of all, Beethoven was one of the first to start breaking down the doors for piano soloists in a concert hall venue. Piano music was more commonly witnessed in salons of the wealthy. A grand room or a party of the richest people in town could gather and hear short pieces played by virtuosos. Beethoven's sonatas, or the New Testament of the piano, according to von Bülow, were the first set of major piano pieces suited to bridge the gap from the salons to concert hall performance. But Beethoven didn't just contribute his work. He advocated for music. Here's a great anecdote as an example. So let's set the scene. Early 19th century, at the estate of Count Moritz Fries. This is a classic salon scene. Lots of rich people, the cream of Viennese society. At this time, it was a social norm that music was basically background noise while the rich guests engaged in conversation. But not today. Today is where this norm begins to crack. Beethoven was performing a march on the piano at the Count's salon when a man in the room said something to the woman standing next to him. And rather than just tell you what happened... This is a report from a witness of this event. Quote, What happened next was a revolutionary act. A verbal guillotine. Beethoven sprang up from the instrument and shouted at the festive company, I do not play for such swine. The crowd fell silent. After all, it's not every day that someone puts a group of high society in their place. They probably had no idea how to react. After repeated attempts to console and apologize, the crowd could not convince Beethoven to resume his playing, so the remainder of the evening resumed in musical silence. This act may seem like a minor temper tantrum from an egomaniacal musician, but it started to change the societal feeling towards music. Beethoven's attitude helped transform the piano from the background to the main event further opening the door of opportunity for pianists being showcased 
and concert halls. Beethoven was also integral in cultivating the evolution of the piano. He was known for his frustrations with the limitations of the early piano models. He was constantly breaking strings with his heavy touch because he wanted the instrument to play louder. And he was ahead of his time by writing music that forced piano manufacturers to expand the size of the keyboard. The original pianos only had a range of 5 octaves, or 60 keys. And this ended up expanding to the modern standard of 7 and 1 3rd octaves. Or, as you may be more familiar, 88 keys. Two major developments were introduced to the piano around the year 1825. French manufacturer Erard's double escapement action and Babcock's cast iron frame. The escapement action allowed a rapid repetition of notes, while the iron frame allowed thicker strings, which greatly increased the piano's dynamic range and gave it a fuller sound. While these two features were technically introduced during Beethoven's lifetime, unfortunately, he never got the chance to play on one of these instruments, so he never got to realize the vision that he had for the future of the piano. But at least he gave us the forward-thinking blueprints for what he had in mind in the form of his collection of piano sonatas. Now let's get back to the music. Like its neighboring Sonata Number no. 20, Number no. 19 also contains two movements in similar form. The first, in sonata form. The second, a dance in rondo form. While Sonata Number no. 20 is set in the key of G major, Number no. 19 is set in G minor. The degree of technical difficulty jumps up a step from Sonata Number no. 20, which also makes Number no. 19 a bit more interesting and complex. We'll dissect movement one during this episode, and save the second for the finale of the series next week. Movement one is marked andante, which is derived from the Italian verb andare, meaning to go. In music, this is usually translated to a walking pace, which is kind of like the Goldilocks tempo. Not too fast, not too slow. We start with the exposition, where we expect to hear the introduction of two themes in different keys. Theme number one opens the sonata in the home key of G minor. It's a bit of a heavy, stately theme that takes advantage of its minor key and gives it some gravitas. The second theme not only makes a peculiar sharp turn to a major key, B-flat major to be specific, but it also lightens the tone. It uses quicker rhythmic accompaniment in the left hand and uses ornamentation to decorate the melody, which ultimately makes this section sound a little bit like Mozart. The ornaments used here are called turns, which is the same ornament that we talked about and practiced in Bergmuller's 8th Etude from Opus 100, right back in episode 4.2. The turn is essentially a snake around a note. You go above, you go below, and then you come back. 
but since these are mere ornaments, they are executed very quickly throughout the theme, just to add some flair to the melody line. So with a change from minor to major, and a lighter tone filled with ornaments, here's an excerpt from theme number two. One thing I didn't mention during the first movement of Sonata Number no. 20 is that classical period sonatas tend to repeat the exposition section, probably to cement the themes in the heads of the listeners before continuing on to the other elements of the sonata. However, I'm not a big fan of repeating for the sake of repeating, so I generally choose to ignore these instructions. With modern repeat and rewind buttons, I think repeat bars are generally a bit uh, anachronistic. If you really want to hear it again, you could easily hit rewind, a luxury that an audience 200 years ago would not have. Up next is the development, a section that plays with the themes from the exposition and formulates new material and variation. You'll know when we hit the development, when you hear a section of dramatic trills announcing its arrival. A majority of the development is built upon fragments from theme two, with modulations including sections in E flat major and C minor. But the development concludes with an ascending reach back to the home key of G minor, which signals the final section of the sonata, the recapitulation. The recapitulation recalls the two themes from the exposition, but brings them both back in the home key. But theme number one shakes it up a bit, offering a brief section of counterpoint where the melody is carried by the left hand, and the right hand plays a counter melody that was not present during the exposition. This is a brief snippet of the Baroque period style of counterpoint, which seems like a small nod to Bach here. This section also stands out because so far the sonata can be safely fit into the classical style of a single melodic line with accompaniment of the opposite hand. But this small section offers a throwback to the two-voice style. From here, the recapitulation transitions to the callback of theme two, this time in the home key of G minor. Since Beethoven chose to write the second theme in a contrasting major key the first time around, Hearing it in a minor key is a stark contrast once again, providing a darker tone in the recapitulation. After both themes play out in the recapitulation, Beethoven gives us a coda to close out this movement. And he does something interesting here 
that we haven't seen in any piece so far during our journey on this podcast. I almost feel like a broken record sometimes when I'm ending the discussion on these pieces because we always, always, always end on the home chord. But Beethoven breaks tradition and decides to venture out from the expected end on G minor. Instead, he employs something called the Picardy Third. And no, it's not a Star Trek reference. This refers to ending a piece written in a minor key with the major chord instead. So instead of ending this movement in G minor, Beethoven chooses to end the last few measures in G major. So just for fun, let's listen to the difference. Here's what the ending would have sounded like if Beethoven decided to keep it in the home key of G minor. But here's the true ending, with the Picardy third in all its glory, ending in G major. It's amazing what changing one little key can do, isn't it? Both of them offer a sense of finality, but with very different feelings. So let's give this whole movement a listen. I'll give you some verbal cues to help outline the sonata format, but the standalone recording will be vocal free. Here is Beethoven's Opus 49, number 1, Sonata number 19 in G minor, movement 1. Man, that's a lot of numbers. Exposition, theme 1. Theme 2. Development.
Recapitulation, Theme 1. Recapitulation, Theme 2 It's a bit more musically interesting and diverse. The shift of the second theme from major to minor and the inclusion of the Picardi third really help add some depth to this sonata as opposed to the more basic number 20. There are also some nods, whether intentional or not, to fellow composers Mozart and Bach, yet it doesn't lose Beethoven's voice. I think it's a step up. Next week, we'll discuss the second movement from this sonata and close out our discussion on Beethoven's Opus 49 and our stay in the classical period. You can find the standalone recording of this sonata movement discussed in this episode right in the podcast feed. If you'd like to get a hold of me, please find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or feel free to email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to expand your classical music knowledge beyond the piano, please consider trying out a two-month free trial of Prime Phonic. The link can be found in the episode description. Thanks as always for listening, and if this was your first time, please hit the subscribe button. We'd love to have you join along for this journey. Next week, we'll be closing out our stay in the classical period and moving on to new pastures. Talk to you then.